Hello, everybody. Hello. Um, don't be shy. I can't. I know. I keep telling you that the cameras will be gone and that we're done with the documentary, but You're for lying. some reason, we're not done with the documentary, and I am a liar. It's this man's fault right here, Jeremy Simmons. You can get him at jeremysimmons at aol.com. Um, we actually premiered the documentary, the first two parts of the documentary at in Virginia this weekend. And uh, it's a pretty good audience. I got to speak on this really crazy panel with a bunch of filmmakers who love to talk about their films. Um, and it was kind of crazy. But yeah, so it was, it was pretty cool to go to Virginia. Um, there was a lot of famous people there, but I didn't get to meet any of them. I get to see one guy who was the Manchurian candidate, the new one. Leif Schreiber? Yeah, got to see him. He was on our plane, and I knew he was a bad guy, but I couldn't fit. I mean, not really, but he's a bad guy. I was like, he's going to take over the plane. I'm going to have to stop it. But, so that went really well. Um, I just want to keep, bring you guys up to speed on a few things. Did you get, who was here last week? One person. So it was just you, huh? Oh, yeah. This is kind of a transient church. Church of the trans, the tramp. Um, but, I've been with my mom a lot, and so I, I, uh, she's really been sick lately. Um, I don't know if some of you know, she's in the last stage of cancer, and it's getting down to the last wire, last, you know, it's just getting pretty bad. So I've been with my mom, and it's been kind of a difficult situation for me to try to start a church and not be here half the time. And so, you know, I apologize to any of you if that seems like it's been inconvenient, but we've got, you know, Mark's a great speaker. I heard he did a sermon on cussing last week. And <laughs> it's, <laughs> well, it was cussing versus cursing. Ah, so um, I think we can all cuss now and another thing to get people mad at. <laughs> I think he said the, the seven dirty words you're not supposed to say on TV. Is it seven? Seven filthy words that you're not supposed to say on television or radio, and I think Mark said them all. <laughs> he is he has surpassed me in in being radical, but wow. I'm chewing gum, and that's so annoying to me when speakers chew gum. And I'm gonna put my gum right there for you, Dad. Um, but it's 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 been a, a really rough time, and I appreciate you guys continuing to come out and support what we're doing, and. Uh, you know, just ask that you be patient with us. And uh, also, I just want to remind you, support the bar, get a drink, tip your bartender, that type of stuff. These guys uh, do run a bar, and they're, they're not a church. <laughs> and that's how they make money. And they've been really great to us. I would really like to, to uh, return the favor. I'm going to share one scripture with you, and then we'll be going. Was there anything else, Mark? Do we have any other announcements? That's it. So I flew in this morning. It was crazy. I would also like to ask you guys if you could just if you think about it. Keep my mom in prayer and my sister too because my sister's been there like 24 hours, 7 days a week. And it really wears on her. And You know, I'm able to help give her a break some, but it's... Uh, it's 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 really sad that nothing you know that we that there's not a whole lot that can prepare you for death really. Um, it seems like you know especially being involved with churches and stuff we should just there should be something that we're more prepared for. We sure do talk enough about it, but then it gets down to it and we don't know what to do. Um, you know, and you think, well, I'm 30 years old and I'm an adult and I can handle this, and it's just you're not. You know, you just turn back into the kid and you're, you're having to be there for your mom it's it's been a challenge but I have had some great experiences um, I really do feel like God's been there for me through a lot of it and uh, and I'm glad I can say that because it's really easy to get jaded and be like where's God when this is happening and I was that way until probably a couple weeks ago and then um, me and my mom had a talk and it really helped me but that's that I wanted to read to you Ephesians 2, 8, 9. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to good, do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. <coughs> this scripture changed my life. The saved by grace scripture, my whole life I thought I was saved by what I did or how good I was or do's and don'ts. And then I realized that God just loved me the way I was. And then when I was like, well, he created us to do good works because at the film festival, someone was like, well, where's the balance? Where's the balance? And I'm like, you know, there's not really a whole lot of balance in grace. You fall in love with Jesus and grace grows. And uh, you learn how to love people rather than what to do and what not to do. You learn, learn compassion. So this has driven my life for a little bit over 10 years now of, uh, in ministry. And it's, it's been a big part of, of everything I do and everything I talk about. The reason I bring this up is, is because a few weeks ago, or maybe a month or two ago, I got a phone call, I think from Armando, <laughs> saying, Jay, you won't believe it. Your dad read this book about grace, and that's all he's talking about, you know? And, uh, and I was really excited about it. Um, I think I've always, my dad's always felt like I was kind of radical and kind of challenging. <laughs> and uh, it was just neat to hear that he's starting to get into some of the same things that I'm into. Yeah, I'm, I was before my time. <laughs> Glad you could catch up. Um, <laughs> It took three men to write a book to convince him. I'm trying. <laughs> That's right. But, uh, but we've, uh, I was talking and I've talked to dad a little bit about the book and he's been telling me some of the things he's been learning about grace and stuff and it's just been really awesome. Um, me and my dad have had a strange relationship over the past 10 years. I got out of prison and we thought everything was going to be good and I was a raging alcoholic. <laughs> But, and then that didn't work out, and we're two very strange men who have a hard time communicating sometimes, but it's been getting better lately. We've been better at communicating with each other. I got to go visit Dad. How long ago was that? Mm-hmm. A couple months ago. A couple months ago. <laughs> One, two, three, four. A couple months <laughs> But a couple months ago, I got to, to uh, go spend some time with Dad, and, and we got to talk some more, and I think anybody who here here who has a parent and that's probably all of you um <laughs> hopefully and if it wasn't i want to know how you got here cause um but it can be you know your parents always seem so so strange i mean i was just talking to sorry dad <laughs> but like i was just talking to um mark and mark was talking about how like it's like yeah about because when we went to virginia his parents live in virginia and he was like yeah about a day and a half into it you know, they were driving to the thing, and my mom's telling them to go one way, and my dad's going another way, and, you know, and me and Jeremy today were talking about our parents, and, and, and it's just, you know, I think it's it's almost like God's way of, of uh, making us grow, you know, uh, with family situations, and uh, I'll tell you what, with my mom going through what she's going through, I've realized how important that is, and how important it's not to take that stuff for granted, um, even if it's just a small note, or a a message on a voicemail. Um, it's worth it um, in the long run. So anyway, tonight is a special surprise. Guest speaker is I asked my dad to come and speak to you guys tonight about grace. So if you came to hear me speak, I know you're devastated. <laughs> but <laughs> but I would like to uh, introduce my dad and and. Uh, let him talk to you and hear what he has to say. So here's Jim Baker. <laughs> well, I've never preached in a bar before. So that's a first. That's kind of liberating, right? Yeah. I love grace. I'm learning grace. It's taken me, I'm 66 years old, and I still haven't figured out. Jamie's come a lot further along the grace walk than I have. But the deeper I go into grace, the more people, you know, are led into heaven, and 
the more, you know what I mean? I mean, the more people that you love, the more people that, it's, it is just, it is so awesome when you realize you don't have to be, be religious and you don't have to try so hard and you don't have to do all the hoops and jumps and try so hard till you're so tired that you say, I can't do this anymore. And uh, I love Jamie. I'm so proud of my son. <sighs> He's doing what I wish I could do. He is loving everybody. You know, in religion, we got an A list and a B list. And if you do the A sins, you can come to church. If you do the B sins, you really aren't welcome. But you know, God doesn't have an A and a B list. He said, whosoever will. But I've had the hardest time receiving it for myself. Anybody like that? I mean, you just, you know, it works for everybody else, but to say God really forgives me. And I, you know, I've been on TV a little bit in my lifetime, and actually that's all I did <laughs> my whole lifetime. And um, I'm really more nervous here than being on television. This, this is really... Um, because I'm very emotional, and I keep saying I'm not going to cry anymore. And uh, all I've done is cry for three weeks. The thing about grace, it heals you, if you really get it. And I've been mad. And I said hurt. I, you know, I went through some stuff, and, and I was I gotten hurt. I've been hurt inside. But finally... The other day after the show, I just, well, maybe maybe I can talk about it in a minute. I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you about it later, maybe. Okay. I'll tell them. You tell them if it's okay. <laughs> I only have 20 minutes, right, to preach. I, I know you yeah, yeah. got it short. Yeah, 25. We'll do 25. I want to know about looking for grace in all the wrong places. The Good Samaritan. We find it in the book of Luke, chapter 10. and <coughs> Verse 25, it says, Then an expert on the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to get life forever? And Jesus said, What is it written in the law? What do you read there? The man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Also love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus said to him, Your answer is right. Do this and you will live. But the man wanted to show the importance of his question, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered, As a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, some robbers attacked him. They tore off his clothes, beat him, left him lying there almost dead. Have you ever been almost dead? I have. I know what it's like. To be left dead by people you thought were your friends. It happened that a priest was going down the road. When he saw the man, he walked by on the other side. Next, a Levite came there, and after he went over and looked at the same man, he walked by also on the other side of the road. Then a Samaritan, which is the opposite religion of the guy that's laying there dying, traveling down the road, came to where the man hurt was, and when he saw the man, he felt very sorry for him. And the Samaritan went over him, poured in olive oil and wine on his wounds, and bandaged them. And then he put the hurt man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he cared for him. The next day, the Samaritan brought out two coins, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of this man. If you spend more money on him, I'll pay it back to you when I come again. Then Jesus said, which one of these men do you think was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the robbers? The expert on the law answered, the one who showed him mercy. 
or those compassions, the same Greek word. Jesus said to him, then go and do what he did. He didn't say go and build a cathedral. He didn't say go and build a television ministry or go build a college. He said go and do what he did. What did he do? He showed mercy. Jesus said go and show mercy, show grace. Create a safe place. Create a place where mercy can be given to everybody. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, one of my favorite scriptures, says, Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I, I like looking words up in the Greek and Hebrew, because it really is broadens the whole meaning of just the real raw scripture. And, and when I looked up that word law of Christ, it was, you know, it said Moses' law, and then the gospel, everything Jesus preached, and then the principles is Christ. So everybody says the Bible is so hard. And here Jesus said, if you want to fulfill the whole Bible, everything I've ever preached, all you got to do is love each other and carry them and bear, bear their burdens and love them. And yet we try so hard to be good. We try so hard to build big churches and, you know, beautiful stained glass windows and big choirs. And, and, and Jesus is saying, all, all it is, the whole New Testament, is just love each other and forgive each other and, and bear one another's burdens. 1 John 3.14 says, We know we have left death and we've come into life because we love each other. Whosoever does not love is still dead. Everyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in them. This is how we know what real love is. Jesus gave his life for us. So we should give our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now I want to tell you, you couldn't build a building big enough to house a church that would be willing to give up their lives for each other. Suppose someone has enough to live and sees a brother or sister in need but does not help, then God's love is not living in that person. My children, we should love people not only with words and talk, but by our action and true caring. <coughs> Most of you don't know who I am, but I'm Jay's dad. Something happened a lot of years ago now, a couple decades ago. And uh, I needed mercy. I'm not going to get through this, I know, today. <laughs> Just breathe. <laughs> Anybody got a hanky? I, I asked for mercy from preachers. I asked for mercy from people who I'd helped. And no one gave me mercy at that time. Not any of the religion gave me mercy. I've been talking a lot about putting a straw on a camel's back. You ever hear the old saying, the straw that breaks the camel's back? I'm begging people to start taking one little straw off somebody. I mean, the waiter here or the waitress here or, or at a restaurant or something, you say oh, something didn't come right, you know, so you scream at that person. You know, that, that girl, she may be, you know, raising five kids by herself. And so by just saying some stupid smart aleck word, we put one more straw on their back. And who knows when it's going to be the straw that they go to take the overdose with. Because they can only take so much. And you know, what would it hurt to smile and say thank you and, you know, try to tip when you can and do the best you can, you know what I mean? To just put little things. 
I didn't want to get deep into to my thing, but I've got to tell you a couple stories, just a little quick stories to let you know my road to where I am today. I was on trial. And during that trial, one of the people testifying against me fell off the witness stand and they thought he died. The judge, in fact, the lawyer said, Let, can Jim go pray for him? And I put my hand on his foot. I didn't want to go even pray for him. I was, it was, I mean, it was just a hellish kind of situation. And I mean, then one of the newspaper reporters said I brought him back to life, which is really <laughs> the funniest thing I ever heard, you know. But I'd been going through the whole thing for quite a while, and so I had a nervous breakdown. I couldn't take any more, and my mind, body, soul just collapsed. So the judge ordered me put in prison immediately. He didn't send me to a normal prison. He sent me to a prison with an insane asylum in it. And they chained me. They chained my waist. They chained my hands. They chained my feet. And put me in the back of a police car and drove me for five, six hours. I don't know how long. Just hours. And I just, I'd fallen over because I was chained. I wasn't able to get back up again. And I was in this state of confusion and not even knowing where they were taking me. My nose was running like it is right now, only I couldn't wipe it off. And it was just dripping down my face and all my suit. When I got to the prison, there was, it looked like a thousand press. There was hundreds, I'm sure. It was like an honor guard, only dishonor guard, you know. When they have an honor guard, they put their guns up in the prison or somebody walks under. It was like all the press with all the cameras and all all the, the, the microphone stands and mics above this thing. And I'm, I'm going in and, and the snot running down my face. And I, it was an unbelievable situation. And someone used to be in the public eye and then being humiliated and by the time I got to the door of some doorway of the prison I blacked out and when I came kind of to I was in what I thought looked like an elevator and they were in my wallet going through everything and it was so crazy all there was was a picture of baby James my my grandson who had just been born a little baby and and that's all I want I said could could I please have that picture and I said we'll see and they stripped me completely naked in front of this whole room full of people and they put an orange jumpsuit on me and took me into another room and they said it was some sort of a physical examination but they stripped Stripped me naked again, took and went into every cavity of my body. <clears throat> and then they let me put my jumpsuit back on, and then I went down to another room, and there was a couple of women sitting at an old desk, and they they uh, they said, "We want you to take your clothes off again. We have to photograph you naked. It's part of." being entered into this system. And I remembered as I, as, as I walked through that compound, in fact, as they took me from that doctor, so-called doctor's clinic or whatever, where they went into every cavity in my body, I heard somebody scream from way up somewhere, Jim, don't let them break you! And I thought, man, you're too late. I'm already broken. And now, as they're stripping, telling me to strip naked again, this time in front of a couple of women and the other guards, 
one guy, just some guy's voice, I don't know who it was, just said, let him leave his underpants on. It was against the rules, but the guy said it. What's the big deal? Somebody took a little straw off my back. Instead of putting another one on. And then they put this jumpsuit on again. I went into an insane asylum place in the penitentiary. And people were screaming, wild-eyed, like demons staring out at me through holes in the cell doors, you know, and and, and they took me down to what we call the hole, I learned later on, solitary. And the guy in the next cell, he was singing three notes all the time I was there. La, 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 24 hours a day. I'd never been in prison before. They put me in the hole, so I i guess they figured I was a very dangerous criminal. And there was a toilet next to the slab, which they call a bed. It's, it's a slab of concrete. And they brought that picture of baby James. Somebody somewhere said, let him have the picture. They didn't have to do it, but somebody said, let's take one more straw off this guy's back. And as I lay there in that cell, I take this picture of my grand, brand new grandson and I'd, I'd turn my back to the wall and I'd look at this picture of James and try to look at something that was worth living for. And there was a little slit window that I could see. And I could see all night long because I didn't sleep. And they came in the night and they put needles in me. I thought they were going to kill me. I thought they were putting drugs in me. But as I could look in that window, they didn't didn't know I was seeing them because I wasn't going to let them see me. But all night long, they, every guard, I think, in the institution, every guard in the prison came to look at me. And I, was, I felt like an animal. I felt like a monkey in a zoo. I was, they were just looking at me all night long. And the guy in the next cell, the singer, was really sick. He was dying. I found out later. He'd throw up and had diarrhea. I mean, this guy's sick. Every filth that could come out of a human body would go into his toilet. And when he'd flush his toilet, the plumbing system in that old prison wasn't exactly the best. And what he put in his toilet came up in my face. The toilet's right next to my head. And they'd bring food and I'd sit there and look at this food and Want to eat, not want to eat. I really didn't want to eat, but I, after seeing this filth and smelling it, there's no way I could have eaten anyway. I got to the point that my cup of pain was full. You ever been there? Anybody ever been there? Ever been there? You can't take anymore. You feel like yeah, I just can't take anymore. I've had all the pain I can take. I've had all the hell I can take. I decided to go insane. I decided literally to let myself go. And uh, a great psychiatrist, a friend of Jamie's, told me that that was the worst thing I could have ever done. And I slipped into the corner of a cell, and and there was like a window there where they all came to look at the monkey and and then at the door. and, And there was one spot, the only spot, they couldn't see me. I went to the bathroom. I had to take. I had to go to the bathroom in front of everybody. I had to take a shower in front of everybody. Anybody who wanted to look at the monkey in the zoo. But I decided to go insane. I decided to leave. And I knew I was going because I'd already had a nervous breakdown. And I slipped down in the corner of that cell. 
And that was the only place the guard couldn't see me. And as I was leaving, I could feel myself leaving. I could just literally feel myself going insane and going, just losing it, going. And as, the, as I was going, I heard this voice and it cried out to me, Jim, God loves you. And it's like, nobody's in this room. So I'm looking around. I don't see anybody. So I talk to the ceiling. You know, that's the sign you may be going insane. <laughs> I think I'm going insane. I'm, I'm yelling to the ceiling. And this voice comes back. No, you're not. God loves you. I look around and, and I, the slit in that door where they put food in, you know, because I was too dangerous to, for them to open the door. So they had to slide it through a hole in the door. and So they're sliding this food in the hole. They slide, and I'm looking, and there is brown, dark brown eyes and, and black skin. I'm thinking, I'm in my haze, I'm thinking, my God, angels are black. <laughs> no, I'm serious. And this, this, this guy prays for me. And then he tells me, he says, Jim, if anyone ever finds out I prayed for you, I find out he's the guard on duty. But he said, if anyone finds out I prayed for you, I'm fired. I, it's against the law for a guard to pray or talk spiritually to an inmate. Here's Jim Baker, the big TV evangelist, the man of God. I'm a whimpering idiot sliding down in the corner going insane. And one black guard decides he's going to risk his employment and shout out, Jim, God loves you. He took the straw, the last straw, he took off my back because I couldn't take anymore. Then go and do what he did. Show mercy. That's what Jesus said. He didn't say go be a big shot. Go speak great proclamations. Don't become a great preacher. He said go and do likewise. What? What's the like? Show mercy. That's what the world's looking for. I've never been able to receive grace because I've been brought up under law. That if I do anything bad, I get thrown out. I could never stay saved as a teenager. Can I say masturbate here? Yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, as you was thir- you know, 13, 14, and 16, if, if you masturbated as a kid, I'm in a bar, I might as well be real. You know, it was like, God's mad. You know, my name up in heaven had gotten raised so many times, I, the paper was worn through probably, you know. <laughs> Mercy takes the straw off the camel's back. I've decided to live in what is called the room of grace, and I hope I have time. I, I want to yeah. read. Yeah. A couple minutes left. Yeah, eight minutes. Oh, God, I can't finish in eight <laughs> minutes. Ten minutes! Where's your grace in this place? <laughs> I have to tell you shorter periods of time. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's right. No, because I don't then know. I know you'll go all over it. So you know, you might know. have more time than you think. I'm almost done. I'm trying to try. I've done it a few times. I don't know if I've ever read a book, a couple pages in a book, from a, in a, trying to... I feel like maybe we should all... Recite poetry here now or something, you know. They, they will, and the open, they have open mic right after. Well, you tell them I'm just one of the poets here. Just okay. <laughs> this story is how I accepted grace. I've only been living in grace now a few weeks. For the first time in 66 years, I'm starting to believe it. I'm starting to accept it. And I'm starting to love everybody so passionately. And the only reason I became angry the other day is I'm so mad 
at people who keep hurting each other. And especially people in church, people that are religious. We keep wounding the wounded. God's crazy about you. Did you know that? This guy wrote this book, one of the guys, John Lynch. That's what he says. God's crazy about you. Hey, God sent his only son to die on a cross. That's crazy. So God's crazy about me. You don't have to like me. It doesn't make any difference. You may think I'm stupid and old and ignorant. But according to the Bible, God loves me. And God's crazy about you. I don't care what anybody said, what some stupid uncle said, or what some girl or some guy or somebody said to you, some teacher who said you're dumb, you'll never amount to anything. Those things stay with us. God says, I love you so much that I gave my only son to die. That's what it's about. It's not about stained glass windows. It's not about beautiful cathedrals. It's about you and I caring for one another. Now I've killed some more time. I really want to read this. Go ahead. I don't usually read books, I'm telling you that. But don't worry, I get it, all the time. This helped me understand it. Could you, if, if you'd listen, if you don't ever do anything else the rest of your life, listen, just listen to this one little piece of this book. It could change your life. It has mine. As we're walking down life's road, we arrive at Tall Pole with a sign pointing in two different directions. The marker leading to the left simply says, Pleasing God. The one leading to the right reads, Trusting God. It's hard to choose one over the other because both roads have a good feel of them. We discover there's no third road and because it's obvious that we'll not be able to jump back and forth between the paths, we must choose one, only one. It will now indelibly mark the way we live. Pleasing God and trusting God represent the primary and ultimate motives of our hearts. The inner drives or desire that cause us to act in a certain way. These motives in turn produce multiple actions. Pleasing God and trusting God are both admirable. But since I can only have one primary motive, I ask myself, which one of these motives best reflects the relationship I want to have with God? In the end, I choose the path marked pleasing God. The trusting God path seems, well, too passive. I want a fully alive experience with God. The pleasing God path seems like the best way there. I think, all right then, my mind's made up. I'm determined to please God. I so long for Him to be happy with me. I'll discipline myself to achieve this life's goal. I know I can do it. Yes, I'll do it this time. I will please Him, and He will be so pleased with me. So we set off with confidence. We are immediately comforted to see that the path is well-traveled. In time, I come to a door with a sign that reads, Striving to be all God wants me to be. These words reflect the values that flow out of the motive of pleasing God, and they describe how we believe we should act. Since my motive is determined to please God, I will value being all God wants me to be. So I open the door by turning the knob of effort. The motive of pleasing God has now produced the value of striving to be all God wants me to be. As I enter this enormous room, a hostess with a beautiful smile greets me and says in an almost too polite tone, Welcome to the room of good intentions. Oh yes, I like the ring of this name. I also like being perceived as someone who is well-intended. Well, thanks, I answered. I think I found my home. How are you? The hostess pauses for a moment, then reaches into her purse to pull out a mask. Being a guarded expression and bearing a thin smile, she puts it on and answers, Fine, just fine. And how are you? The entire room suddenly gets quiet, awaiting my answer. 
Well, thanks for asking. Um, I'm struggling with some things right now. Some areas that don't seem to be keeping in, in, in keeping with who I know I'm supposed to be. I, I'm not really sure I'm doing well. A lot of uh, the hostess cuts me off, putting her finger to her lips and handing me a similar mask. I'm not quite sure what to do. I don't really want to be uh, to put it on, but others in the room are smiling and motioning me to do the same, so I want to be accepted here. And then I slowly, I put it on. And now everything feels different. I'm quickly overcome with the realization that less self-revelation would be a smart game plan here. I realize that no one in this room wants to hear about my struggle, my pain, or my doubt. If I want to be welcome here, I better keep my cards close to my vest and give the appearance of sufficiency. So I slowly and carefully say the words, actually, I'm fine. I'm doing just fine, thanks. Satisfied, everyone in the room turns back to their conversation. You see, everyone in the room of good intention has the value of striving to be all God wants them to be. They're sincerely determined to be godly. Their values produce actions that are best summarized by an enormous banner on the back wall that reads, Working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. They've made it their goals to be godly, and they fully expect the same of everyone in the room. As I read the words on the banner, I can't help but think, sounds a lot like, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Yep, I'm on the right place, I'm in the right room. The people here of sincerity, perseverance, courage, diligence, their, their full-hearted fervency, a desire to please God, sold-out determination to pursue excellence. Yes, this is a place I've been looking for. Oh, I'm going to make him so happy. One day soon, we'll be close. I just know it. Yet as the weeks turn into months, I can't help notice that many people in this room sound a bit cynical and look pretty tired. Many of them seem alone, and if I catch them when they think no one's looking, I see incredible pain on their faces. Quite a few seem superficial, guarded. After a while, I realize that, realize that my thinking has begun to shift too. I no longer feel as comfortable, relaxed here as I have this nagging anxiety. If I don't keep behaving well, if I don't control my sin enough, I'll be on the outs with everyone in the room and with God. So I start investing more effort into sinning less. I feel better for a while, but the more I spend in the room of good intentions, the more disappointment I feel. Despite all my striving and all my efforts, I keep sinning. In fact, some days I'm fixated simply on trying not to sin. I seem to never be able to get around on things to please God. It takes all my energy to avoid doing those things that displease Him. Other days I can't seem to do enough. I never get through my list of things to work on. It feels like I'm making every effort to please God who never seems pleased enough. I carry an overwhelming sense of guilt because I have to hide my sin from everyone in the room and from God. Gradually, almost imperceptibly, the road of pleasing God has turned into what must I do to keep God pleased with me? The stifling atmosphere in the room and the tightness of my mask makes it hard for me to breathe. I'm so tired of pretending and keeping up appearances. As I search for the door, someone walks up to me and looking over his shoulder whispers, Hey, mm, I'm going to check out the other path back at the crossroads. For the last several years, I've given this room everything I've got. And something's not working here. You look tired, too. You want to go retrace our steps and head out for the trusting God trail? So back I go to the fork in the road. Seems wrong to take the road marked trusting God. Is have been getting away with something. I look around for a third road. Maybe some combination of the two, but no luck. There's just two roads. Still, the road of trusting God sounds a lot less ironic than the other. A bit ethereal and vague. It appears to give me nothing much to do with other than trust. All I ever heard in the room of good intention was I have to sell out, care more, get on fire, buck up, shake up, shape up, tighten up. 
This road doesn't seem to give me any of that. But I think, well, I'm only risking a little time and effort. I can always head back to pleasing God path if this turns out to be a dead end. Besides, the cracks in my mask are getting bigger and bigger. And I don't know how long I can keep bluffing. People have got to be catching on that something's just not right with me. I don't know what else I can do. If this road doesn't take me to where I want to go, I'm cooked. I've got no other game plan. I need answers, real answers, and quickly. I'm running out of time and rubber cement for my mask. So begin walking on life's path with the motto of trusting God. This road is definitely less worn than the other. I have second thoughts every fifth yard or so, but I cannot bring myself to return to the emptiness of the alternative. So I walk on, looking for the second door. Eventually I spot it, and as I approach it, I read the words on the sign above it, living out of who God says I am. I tilt my head to the side, thinking the phrase might make more sense if I do. These are certainly some words, one right after another. What in the world do they mean? It can't mean what I think it means. When do I get to do something? Where's the part where I get to prove my sincerity? Where is my guidelines? Where do I get to give God my best? I shake my head and stoop down to read what it says on the doorknob. Humidity. Humidity. Humility. 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 Suddenly everything snaps into focus. I've tried so hard. I've supplied all the self-effort the other room demanded, yet received nothing but insecurity and, and duplicity. I've run out of answers, run out of breath, run out of ability, so I cry out, God, if anything good has come out of this whole deal, you'll have to do it. I'm tired. I can't. I'm so tired. Please, God, you'll have to give me the life I'm dreaming of. I can't keep doing this anymore. I'm losing confidence that this life is you, is even possible. Help me. You must make it happen, or I'm doomed. With those words, I turn the doorknob. As I step inside, another hostess immediately approaches. She smiles kindly with a voice that is once knowing and reassuring, says softly, Welcome to the room of grace. I answered tentatively, Thank you. She presses, how are you? The room grows quiet. Well, I've been here before, so not to be duped twice, I answer. I'm fine, pretty fine. Who wants to know? And the room stays quiet. Gunshy from the first room, I interpret the silence as judgment. So I yell out, all right, listen, I'm not fine. I haven't been fine for a long time. I'm tired. I feel guilty, lonely, and depressed. I'm sad most of the time, and I can't make my life work. And if any of you knew half my daily thoughts, you wouldn't want me in your little club. So there, I'm doing not fine. Thanks for asking. I reach for the doorknob to leave and hear a voice from far back in the crowd. That's it? That's all you got? I'll take your confusion, guilt, and bad thoughts. I'll raise you compulsive sin and chronic lower back pain. <laughs> oh, and I'm in debt up to my ears. And I want no classical music from a show tune if it jumped up and bit me. You better have more than that puny list if you want to play in my league. The greeter smiles and nudges me and says, I think he means you're welcome here. Emboldened, I smile and call back, Do you struggle? With forgetting birthdays, he walks right up to me with the way, from way in the back, puts his hand on my shoulder and said, Birthdays? I can't remember my own. Everyone in the room laughs the warm laughter of understanding. I am ushered into the fold of a sweet family of a kind and painfully real people. There's not a mask to be seen anywhere. As I walk into the room, I notice a huge banner on the back wall. This one reads, Standing with God with my sin in front of me, working on it together. I think, wait, this can't be right. How can this be? It sounds presumptuous, careless. Imagine God with his arm around me as we view my sin together. Come on, surely they've written it down wrong. I've always been told that my sin is still a barrier between God and me. And if I, it could be true that God actually stands with me in front of my sin, well, that would change everything if it were true. God has never moved away from me, no matter what I've done. Oh, my God. I have to rethink everything. Despite my doubt, I can't help but notice that in this room, the room of grace, 
Everyone seems virtually alive. The people are obviously imperfect, full of compromise and struggle. But they're authentic enough to talk about it and ask for help. Many have a level of integrity, maturity, love, laughter, and freedom and vitality that I don't recall seeing in the people in the other room. I feel the start is something I haven't felt in a long time. Well, as long as I can remember. It's safety. It's safety. In the room of grace. Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Closing, I've decided to live in the room of grace. I decided to receive grace for myself. I went to a conference with these guys who wrote this book the other day, and they're talking about shame. I don't live in shame, I am shame. I've been shamed from the day I was born. I've never been good enough. I've never been able to please my dad. I was even, I failed grades and then I moved schools and I was even elected president of a class deal and my dad never said I'm proud. I've never been good enough. I've walked with presidents, flown on Air Force One, been in wide the house with them. And a voice would always say, wait till they find out who you really are. You're no good. I was molested when I was a boy. Never told anybody till I was 52 years old. Shame. That's the devil's word. God takes it all away and gives grace. That's where I want to live. To receive grace, you must also give grace. This closing story, I'll make it real short. I was at Burt Reynolds' house. Anybody still remember old Burt? We've been in crazy places. Hey, I went as Burt Reynolds a couple years ago for Halloween. So I've been in crazy places. <laughs> but I was walking, and we were down in Florida, and ran into some guys and said... Bert wants you to come to his house, which is kind of crazy. And he was doing a play of called Mass Appeal. And uh, he wants you to take a look at it, just see what you think about it. That's when people still want to be around me a little bit. They think you have power. People like to be around power. Money and power. You know, I lost what I thought was my best friend's. But you know what I found? I found there's a Bible definition of friends. The Bible says a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. So ask me now, how many friends did you lose? Sounds like something from Johnny Carson used how to. How many do. friends did you lose? <laughs> and, I you, and today, you know, 20 years ago I'd have counted up. The guy I thought was my best friend hasn't spoke to me since the day I lost the kingdom, the stuff, the money. But I want to tell you how many I'm going to tell you how many friends I lost. I didn't lose any. I just found out who they were. You can't lose friends. According to the Bible definition, but I got to hurry. Burt Reynolds. So I Burt Reynolds house. We're closing down. The bandit. And uh, he was doing a play and it was about a Catholic priest and a young priest and the priest young priest was always preaching about stuff he didn't know anything about so the older priest said, now come on, you've got to start preaching on stuff you know. Not all this stuff you don't know. And he, so the next Sunday, his turn to give a message. And so he gets up and he started to talk about his goldfish, his tropical fish. And he said, you know, I, I came home the other night and my tropical fish that I love so much, he said, I found them all dead. They're laying on top of the tank and they're, they were bloated and their eyeballs were exploded out. And he said, I wondered is they were dying if they, if, if they were crying out and screaming to me. I wonder if fish scream, a silent scream that we don't hear. And 
He said, I wonder if my fish cried a silent scream. And he looked at his congregation that morning and he said, many of you here today, you're crying a silent scream and no one hears you. No one hears your scream. guy named T.D. Jakes, a preacher, if you've heard of him. He heard me tell this story right after I got out of prison because that's how I felt as I was being driven to prison for the, spend the rest of my life. I felt I was crying a silent scream and no one heard that scream. But when you live in the room of grace, you start hearing each other. You can start confessing your faults one to another. The Bible said praying one for another that you will be healed. That's what it says in James 5.16. Grace builds a place where people hear the silent scream. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so God can heal you. Church is not a building with a steeple, but a safe place, a sanctuary. That's what sanctuary means. You know what it means? Church means safety. It's not a place. Jamie always he goes on my show and rattles everybody and cuts all my income off and everything. <laughs> shows his tattoos. And, and then he says, church is the only hospital that won't accept sick people. It's amazing how many people are quoting that today. But church is a place where you can take your mask off. Church is a place where you can be real. The real church is not a steeple, not a building. It's a place where you gather that you're honest and you're real. It's not trying not to sin. Listen to me. The more you work on not sinning, the more you will sin. It's been taken care of on the cross. Ephesians 2.4 God's mercy is great. He loved us very much. Though we were spiritually dead because of the things we did against God, He gave us new life with Christ. You have been saved by grace, God's grace. And He raised us up with Christ and gave us a seat with Him in the heavens. He did this for those in Christ Jesus so that for all future time He could show the great riches of His grace by being kind to us in Christ Jesus I mean that you have been saved by grace through believing. You did not save yourself. It was a gift from God. It was not the result of your own efforts, so you cannot brag about it. God has made us what we are in Christ Jesus. God made us to do good works, which God planned in advance for our life and the lives and the things we are doing. The one thing he said, remember this now. When you live in the room of grace, you live in the room that is what God says about you. Start believing what God says. Don't believe what religion says. Don't believe what friends have said or enemies have said. Here's what God says. But now, this is in Colossians, but, but now by means of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends. What did I say about friends? The Bible says a friend loves at all. Say all. all. That means forever. God's forever with you. God says he has made you your friends in order to bring you, here's how, here's how God sees you, holy, pure, and faultless into his presence. That's the God of grace that I have decided to serve. And I want to be more like Jesus, but I'm really trying to be more like Jamie first because I'm really having a hard time being like Jesus. <laughs> well, that was awesome. This is... 
part of me and my dad reconnecting, so it's kind of weird, and it's kind of weird to have the documentary guys here and all of you here too, but this is just kind of how we work. I hope you enjoyed it. You're not going to see an old school preacher in Pete's candy shop most of the time, and I also, um, you know, dad thinks prison was hard, but he just preached a sermon in the most cynical place on earth, Williamsburg, <laughs> Brooklyn, and with, you know, so he, he's, he's really made it now. Um, thanks, guys. They got a um, open mic that's about to happen here, so I want you to encourage you guys to talk to each other. I want to say hey and everything, but if we can, let's try to do it out there and you know get a drink, tip your bartender, so all the open mic folks can get in here and get set up. And uh, thanks for coming out. And uh, hopefully, we will. Uh, I'll see you guys next week. And uh, it won't be this exciting though, because that's like old school preaching, and I'm just like. Well, anyway, then Jesus says it's cool. So, pray real quick. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for for loving us. Thank you for accepting us. And thank you for allowing us just to be. And uh, help us to accept that more every day, Father. And and, uh, just help us to be people of compassion without agendas. And and to show mercy. And allow mercy and compassion to be our agenda, Father. And... uh, Help us to care about one another. And uh, thank you for everything, Lord. And I just also pray for my sister and my mom right now and anybody else here who's going through just a really rough time that you would help us uh, get some peace that that we so desperately need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so go out, support your bartenders, and let the uh, open mic people get in here. And then maybe you can come watch some open mics. There's some good folks.